0: You are now listening to the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. As always, I am your host Daniel Lee or Photos by DLW. So today we're going to be talking about what to buy after you get your first camera. This can be a bit confusing for some people, people do end up wasting money, so I thought it would be a good topic to cover for those out there who have just, you know, got a new camera recently or their first camera and are new to the world of photography. As always, we're going to go over some news and what I've been up to, so started off what I've been up to. So today, at the day of recording, which will be a few days before release, I just started a new job. So, you know, new experience, that sort of thing for me, outside my comfort zone outside my house because I'm no longer working from home. So that'll be a bit different. It has been a bit more of a challenge in this sense to record the podcast because obviously before I could record it before work on my lunch break, heaps of different options. Whereas now because, you know, I have to leave the house that makes it a bit different. I can't just, you know, simply do that, do it during those times. So I have to more dedicate the time to actually record it rather than just do it on a whim. In terms of taking photos, I'm still so bad at it. I managed to release a blog post but on photos by dlw.com. but I have barely been shooting. I only had one new photo in the past two, three weeks on there. That photo as well was just sort of, I would maybe like a casual shot, but it did have some meaning to me. So it was taken in the area I used to work. So it was like, goodbye, Barangaroo. I've posted on Flickr already, so you can see it there. But, you know, that was just sort of something I wanted to sh- take just to remember the area. And that day when I took it, the clouds were insane there. It was really, really nice. So I was happy to be able to capture that. Otherwise, you know, I feel like once I get more into my work pattern again and get used to it, I sort of work out these timing issues I have for like my exercise and all that. Then I'll finally be able to actually, you know, dedicate time to photography again and really, you know, get back into it. Because I do miss it, do miss getting out, taking photos but it's just you know inspiration. That's where it always comes down to inspiration and time. Now, there's not much else you know I can cover for personal updates, so we'll get, jump right into the news. Now, the first one, there's no official article attached to it. I'm just gonna say it. So, according to Nakashita, which you know release pretty much factual stuff, they're not really rumors. Canon is going to release a sixteen, sorry, fourteen to thirty five f four l next. It's been registered, and the fact that it can have an attachable lens hood seems to hint that I can take front filters. So it sounds like this lens is going to be sort of a competition for the Nikon 14 to 30 f4, which is also, you know, a wide, very wide angle zoom, but it can still take front filters, which to me is a massive thing. I don't know. I'm just not really sold on rear filters, not the quality of them. I think you can get good quality ones. It's just if you want to change them in the field, you're going to have to take the lens off in the field, you know, and ex- potentially exposing your sensor to any dust and that sort of stuff. Not to mention, I'm always just paranoid that something can go wrong, and that could come off and end up hitting the sensor and damaging the sensor. So that's sort of where you know rear sense uh, rear filters aren't really for me. I think if you're shooting Canon, the best sort of option in that case would be if you're using an, a really ultra wide angle EF lens that takes that doesn't take front filters because they do have the EF to RF adapter that can take ND filters. So that would be sort of like the best middle ground between them. Otherwise, you know. I keep telling myself I'm only going to go for primes, but I don't know how feasible it is for someone to release a 16mm or 18mm prime native in RF. So, besides, you know, if Samyang do port that lens over, Sam, I'm still hoping back when I was shooting Sigma, I think I mentioned I'm um, Sony, Sigma did have a bunch of full frame mirrorless patents, patents, or however you want to say it, that one of them was a 16mm f4, I think, which would be nice and small theoretically. And it seemed to be small from that design thing. So, If that one gets made, that could definitely be a lens for me, but whether it would come to Canon right away, who knows? People always wanting to know when these, you know, third-party lenses are gonna come to RF mount and Z mount. In one interview, Sigma said it takes usually roughly around three years for them to design a lens for a mount and system. Now, considering that the RF and the Z mount are around three years old now, coming up towards the end of this year will be three years. I'm hoping we get to start see some now, but I'm sure that COVID is probably, you know. Put some issues with that plan and maybe longer, but you know, considering they do have these DN lenses for both L mount and E mount, I'm hoping it's just a matter of getting them to work with the new AF protocols for both the RF and the AF mount. But onto the actual news, which funny enough, the first one isn't something that's been officially announced, but now there's been a report that has released that Nikon will be releasing a ZFC, which will be a retro-inspired. 1000 US dollars ASPSC camera. So if you remember the Nikon DF, that old full-frame retro-looking camera, think about that but an APS-C one and for the Z-mount. Now if this is true, obviously you know you would have to take it with a grain of salt just in case it isn't and it is sort of, you know, something that never comes to fruition or fake altogether. It would look kind of funny to be honest using such a retro camera, an old-looking camera with these brand new, Z mount lenses, you know, that have a very new design, which you can sort of see in the photo in the article. Whether or not it does come, you know, I don't know how popular it will be. I would assume that it may be popular because Fuji cameras do have a more retro style to them. They're APS-C and, you know, they're very, very popular. So in that sense, it is feasible for it to happen. But whether or not it will happen, who knows? Would it be something that I would, you know, say you should buy? If you like that kind of design and you want that, you know, don't mind spending that money on an APS-C camera. Go ahead, but it's you know, hopefully it does well. I don't want to see Nikon release anything that does badly, especially, you know, they're not as large as Sony or Canon, they can't take an L as well as them. So hopefully they this does well and it pays off for them if they do take this venture. So according to this article by Petapixel, there is a new team of researchers that have put together a new initiative with an available open source core code to help better detect deepfakes that have been edited to remove watermarks with the goal of avoiding the spread of misinformation. So, pretty much in-painting, which is also known as Content Aware Fill for Photoshop users, is a method that uses machine learning models to reconstruct missing pieces of an image or to remove unwanted objects. Now, this is obviously something we use day to day. Content Aware Fill is a very huge thing. You know, Adobe each update keeps making it better and better, more powerful, especially with, you know, select subject, it can detect stuff. So obviously, Especially with some images, you know, people will add a watermark tool to protect it, but especially if it's, you know, like a landscape, seascape, that kind of stuff, and you've put the watermark somewhere where it can easily be removed, many people could probably remove it in a few seconds using content-aware fill. This new software that they've created or where it is has, will be a way to detect if an image has been manipulated and something has been removed from it, which to me is very good and it could be very interesting. Obviously, detecting deep fakes, misinformation, that kind of stuff is one use for it. But if you think about using it in something like a photo competition, I went over, you know, just the last episode, I believe it was about photography competitions and how some of them don't allow certain composites and editing and misleading stuff in there. So imagine if they could use that software to run each image to see if it had been manipulated and how. So even if someone has the most convincing image that it's meant to be a pure natural landscape or seascape or cityscape or whatever, but they runs through there and you find the sky is replaced, it sort of prevents the issue of them awarding that person as the winner than having to retract it again afterwards once they find out, you know, this image is technically not legitimate in that sense. Any of this kind of stuff like AI, I, you know, in this sense, I think it's great. When you get stuff like Luminar that's more building on what AI can do and, you know, more fake images, well, I would call fake anyway. It's good to have something that balances the scale and lets you know what is fake and what isn't. Now, if they could build this into a like a social media, so when someone uploads on it, you know you can. I think they can do that. On some, they can let you know if something's been altered. That would be great. So you have a very good, very accurate sense of what's real and what's not, and what is actually achievable in photography. All for the better. To me, there's no real downside to it. The last story is quite an interesting one. So, well, for me anyway, but maybe depending on what brand you shoot, it's not. So the last one is about Canon Rebuff's rumors that its R3 sensor is made by Sony. So the TLDR, the too-long-didn't-read, you know, the shorter the story is there's a website called EOSD, EOSHD, sorry. They made an article claiming that the R3 sensor was made by Sony, according to this white sheet, just because it's, you know, 30 megapixels or whatever, and uh, 30 FPS, it can do 30 FPS. And then this is a quote that they got from the article, which is originally posted. And this is really funny to hear. This is the first time Canon had to go to Sony for a modern flagship EOS camera. To tap the company's back illuminated stack sensor technology, it must work out more economical to buy the sensor from Sony than to develop the same thing themselves and license all the patents. Still, sign of times. Now, this is the best bit. This means that essentially the images coming out of the Canon EOS R3 are Sony images, although image processing and color signs do count for a lot. It's the fundamental capture is by Sony. Politically, this must be hard to take a Canon. Now, in general, my general opinion, obviously, this is more just to gain traffic, create controversy. But because of this, Canon reached out to Petapixel to reiterate that the sensor in the upcoming R3 camera is Canon designed and manufactured, which they had already said before. But clearly, you know, anything to discredit Canon. Try and make, you know, they have a BSI stack sensor now must be Sony. Canon can't create sensors. And the worst part about this is that it doesn't matter. Even if it was Canon making the sensor and it was in a Sony body, it's still a Sony image. It does not matter who makes the sensor. They are just manufacturing it where, where the company designs it. But Canon manufactures, designs, everything themselves. By this theory of this person who wrote the original article from EOS HD, every Nikon image is a Sony image because Nikon has Sony manufacture their sensors for them, which makes absolutely no sense. Either way, I don't think anyone really fell for this or anyone even believed it. It's more just, you know, the general nonsense you see, brand wars, brand bias stuff you always see, no matter. And it's not just Sony users or Canon or any. You see it from everyone. Sony, Canon, Nikon, Fuji, everyone has their brand bias. Even I have a brand bias. I'm a little bit biased towards, say, Sony and Canon, you know, I wouldn't deny it. Everyone has a bias, no matter how much you want to admit it. Would that stop me from using a Nikon camera if I had the money? No, I'd love to get one. Funny enough, as I always say, their lenses actually in the Z mount are all the pretty much focal lengths that I would want to use. I was even thinking the other day, what, you know, what if I had gone back from Sony to Nikon instead of Sony to Canon just to try all three of them? But, you know, I love my R6, so I'm not going to lie. The AF on that is amazing. So I don't think I would have. But if it was a case where they had the exact same lenses and Nikon had all smaller lenses, and went more the simple route when it comes to designing them you know like a small amount of groups small amount of elements keep all lenses small but fast you know like how the old canon lenses used to be 100% I would go for them then I want the smallest lenses with the fastest aperture I can get pretty much when you know with good image quality obviously as well is an important part but that is it for the news so what I'll do is I'll get into the main topic so every day there's bound to be people who start photography as their new hobby or passion And you know, once you get your first camera, it's not like it's everything's complete. That's usually just the beginning of the journey. There's so much more to learn, so much more to try, to do, to discover, which can obviously be a bit daunting, you know. And I think you'll find a lot of the time people will rely on someone in the camera store that's working there to sell you what you need. But you know, it's not technically their fault, but not their fault. But they're just doing their job. They have to push these products to you. Whereas a lot of these products are unnecessary. So what I thought I would do is, you know, for those who new to photography or just got a new camera I thought I'd go over exactly what accessories you know or anything you know that you should be looking at buying once you've got your first camera. Now just a bit of a disclaimer with this so I had a previous episode I believe which was called buy once cry once or I don't know if I've actually covered yeah I've, I've covered it before so buy once cry once. Pretty much rather than buy something cheap you know for cheap and then keep it for a short while and get rid of it and buy the more expensive one later on Even though it's expensive and it seems like it's hard, just buy once, cry once, buy it, be done with it. That thing will last you longer. Obviously, more expensive doesn't always mean better quality. But if you do your research, often it does. And that one item, you will tend to outgrow it more than it would sort of outgrow you or break before you get that chance. So when I make these sort of, I don't say recommendations, but when I make these suggestions of, you know, what to spend on what or what ones to get. It may seem like I'm picking all expensive ones, but A, I am not sponsored by anyone. I have no affiliations. B, it's just my recommendation. I always believe in buying the better item once rather than keep buying cheaper, you know, items that'll break and aren't as good. So the first thing, obviously depending on what kind of genre you shoot, depends on what you should look at buying. But a tripod is a very good thing to buy, especially if you're into landscapes, skittiescapes, still life product photography, that's pretty much going to be an essential item for you. Now, when it comes to types of tripod, generally for photography, you want a ball head. Pan heads are more for video, but ball head is the way to go. And you you know, most people when they first start photography, I think everyone's owned it. It's that same generic kind of eBay, cheap one. I don't know. I think they sell them at Walmart in America as well. That same cheap one that's like very limited in its movement, pretty much pure plastic. It's useless. It's not worth buying, to be honest. If you're serious about your photography and you're going to stick to it and commit to it, you're better off buying something. Like I personally love Surui, S-U-R-U-I, I believe is the spelling for it. I got two carbon fiber tripods from them. And you know, when you hear carbon fiber, you think expensive. But I believe my travel tripod, which is still very sturdy, was only about two fifty, and it's quite small. You can easily fit in a backpack. And once you're starting out photography, you tend to do a lot of exploring. I feel like that would be a really good starting point. Otherwise, I have a bigger one, which is a discontinued model, RR204, I think it is. So there's no real point looking into that one because you can't get any more. But I would definitely recommend a carbon fiber one. As I mentioned, just because it's carbon fiber doesn't mean you need to spend more, like spend a significant amount more. Travel tripods can be a good starting point as well because they are cheaper, but you can get very stable ones like the Manfrotto B3, as well as that Suré. I think it's X2204 or something like that. But if you look up uh, Suray travel tripods, you'll be able to find out whatever the latest model is. Generally, the less sections you have, I believe it's the more stable it is. But look at as many reviews as you can for it. Like that travel tripod I have from Suray, that one, you would expect it to be not as stable as it is. But when I was in Singapore near the Gardens by the Bay, I was on this wooden bridge. And I was trying to do a long exposure of Marina Bay Sands. And I was actually quite surprised because it was like a 20 second exposure. And there was kids running back and forth on the wooden planks. But then the image was still so sharp. It was still so steady. But it is known that carbon fiber does absorb vibrations that better compared to aluminum. So, you know, that's another reason why I would mention getting a carbon fiber tripod. And, you know, even if you spend up to 500 AUD or I don't know how much that would be USD, it does sound like a lot for something you may not, you know, feel like you need to spend that much on. But if you get a good quality tripod and you take care of it, they can last you easy 10 years or more. The next item which is a bit of a controversial one is filters. So when you hear you know filters are not needed it's a very sort of broad range, it's a bit too broad. So usually when people say filters are not needed they're referring to UV filters which are pretty much do nothing for your actual image, they're just to protect the front element. Now a lens hood can also protect the front element if you're to say drop your lens or bump something on the front. So Really, if you do really insist on getting a UV filter to protect the front of lens, it's something, you know, you feel like you must do, then you have to understand how much you spend on it is how much it's going to affect your image quality. So if you get just the cheapest one, just something cheap to protect the front element, don't expect your images to still be sharp because they're gonna. it's going to reduce the image quality and the sharpness, especially if your lens is a kit lens and it's not that sharp to begin with. You're wanting to look at, say, like the Hoya HD Pro, those kind of ones, which are usually going to set you back, honestly, close to 100 AUD or I don't know how much, you know, 70, 80 US dollars. So that's why you're better off just, you know, not going for them and just relying on the lens hood. But, you know, it's up to you. It's your choice. Don't listen to me. If you damage your lens, it's not on me. The type of lens filters I would definitely recommend are not only square filters. Square is the way to go, to be honest. But you'd want to get ND filters, especially if you're into landscape. So you can slow down your exposure. Long exposures are something very nice and aesthetically pleasing for me anyway. I think for most people. So if you want to do long exposures, then you definitely need ND filters. People like Nissi, they do a really good kit. The V6 Pro, V6, I think it is V6 or V6 Pro is the one I have. It's like a kit that comes with the holder and a CPL built into it, which is you can remove it, but it's a really, really good kit. And the benefit of having a circular or square filter, sorry, over circular is you'll generally get a lot less vignetting from what i found. And also, you just need to buy the adapter rings, which are cheap, only like 10, 15 bucks. And then that adapter ring attaches to the holder. So you just buy one filter. Whereas if you're going to buy it, say you have a lens with a 67mm filter thread, 77, 82, you need to buy three sets of filters or stop-down rings where it's more a hassle. Just go square, square, honestly, the way to go. But when filters, they're definitely something to look in getting If you do landscapes, cityscapes, that kind of stuff, anything with long exposures. Now, if you're a portrait photographer, lighting gear or product photographer, lighting gear is another thing that is very important and something that could really benefit you to get next after you get your camera. Now, depending on what you want to shoot, you can get anything cheap, say like a Yongnuo Wine 362, which is a LED RGB, you know, strobe handheld light. So light stick pretty much. Sorry, I forgot the term for a second there. It's a light stick, so you could use that. That is one good option to use. Otherwise, with flashes, they do have their advantages, but I would personally recommend a strobe. And you probably think strobes is gonna cost you a lot of money, but you have ones like the 8100 and the 8200 from Godox, or I forgot the name of the brand in America. They're sold from Adorama, Flashpoint. That's it, Flashpoint. If you get those, I'm not sure how much the USD pricing is, say like the 8200, it's significantly more powerful than a f- um, speed light, you know, like a small flash you can attach to the top of your camera. But it's only about, it's 500 AUD, I believe, which I think would be maybe around 300 USD, I'm guessing anyway. This thing will last you a lot longer and it's a lot more powerful. You can use it outdoors, overpower the sun pretty much with it. It's a lot better value compared to a flash. Like as soon as I got my eighty two hundred, I sold all my flash gear. If you want to do stuff like bouncing flash and have it on camera, obviously you can't do that with that, but you'll always get better lighting quality if you take the flash off camera. So that's where the AD200, any strobe will come in. The next up is editing software. So depending on what brand you use, this may affect it because if you use Fuji, from what I know, Photoshop is no, or Lightroom it does not work with Fuji files and their colors, but it's definitely editing is often where you'll see a big difference in your images. Some people think editing is cheating, but you know, you can go back and listen to an old episode of mine. Every single image is edited. There is no such thing as the only time, you know, an image isn't edited. If you shoot a raw image and then convert directly to JPEG with zero adjustments, that is not an edited image. If you shoot in JPEG, it's edited. If you edit it, obviously it's edited. But editing software is quite important. I personally have the photography pack from Adobe. You know, when it comes to the actual power of the raw editor, Lightroom versus Capture One. Capture One is a more powerful raw processor and the quality of what it does is better. But just for the like ecosystem and the interface, user interface, I prefer Adobe. I'm more used to it. It's what I've used for so long. I know Capture One's better, but I'm just used to Adobe. And plus, I do majority of my stuff in Photoshop anyway. So, you know, I need Photoshop. So I'd be paying for that anyway. So, I might as well just use Lightroom for everything. On the topic of editing as well, editing classes, I see a lot of people online selling editing classes. Now, there's ones like Flurn, which, you know, he's a Photoshop expert, which would be worth paying for if you want to learn more and you need that help and the free videos on YouTube aren't helping you. Otherwise, you know, paying for it, it's always up to what you're comfortable to invest in. I never paid for editing classes. I just watch free videos on YouTube and practice makes perfect. Shoot more, edit more, learn more. But it really comes down to what you want to do. I, as I said, you know, I've never paid for it, but you know, if I really wanted to learn Photoshop more in more depth, I think I would go to someone like Phlearn or I think it's Pix I'm Imperfect. And the last one, but most important, maybe it would be a second lens or a third, second or third lens. The reason why I think this one should be held off a bit is you should be looking at what you want to shoot and what focal lengths you like. Now, most people go to, you know, generally, most people get an APS-C camera as their first camera. And then their first lens or first lens after the kit lens would be a 51.8. Now, which is that's like an 85mm on an APS-C camera. What you would want to do is really use that kit lens, figure out which focal lengths you like best, and then pick your next lens based off that. There's no you should get for this. You know, most people will suggest to get a cheap lens, you know, because the 51.8 is cheap. But like I always said, for me, buy ones, cry ones. What I did is my, after getting my kit lens, I think I got the 51.8, but I like that a lot until I got my 17 to fourteen, and I wish I bought that one originally because all I was doing was cityscapes and that kind of stuff so the 51A didn't really help me as much in that sense because back then I preferred wide so just shoot you know maybe give it a month or two shoot as much as you can with the kit lens see which focal lengths and kind of stuff and genres you like to shoot then pick a lens based off that so that's pretty much my main suggestions of what to buy after your first camera hope you enjoyed this episode if you did make sure to subscribe. You can check the full show notes here, or you can visit thephotographyenthusiast.com. I realize now, I always say links in the show notes, only if you look at enthusiast.com. Sadly, the links don't seem to work on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you want to follow me, links will also be there, but otherwise, I pretty much only post on Flickr and Twitter, and Twitter, i Mr. Meowpus. or the TP. I've been trying to post more photography stuff on TPE as well. But yeah, otherwise that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and thank you for listening. Bye.